My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. It's worse for everyone, trust me. This is the 14th episode of the history of film, growing audiences, and consolidating power. Hello, and welcome back to the history of film. In this episode, we'll cover the beginnings of the studio system, or at least a studio system, for film production. We'll also be talking about the factors that led to a boom in the United States film industry before World War I. By the end of the episode, movies will start to take on an even more familiar shape. Now, I've had some trouble writing this one, because it isn't a super clear line from A to B through all of this. Instead, it's like A and B and C were happening all at once, and that led to E. I have tried to provide a pretty clear and logical way through this, though, so hopefully you should be able to follow along just fine. But just keep in mind that all of the stuff we talk about, especially in the first half of today's episode, was happening all at the same time, and it wasn't as clearly delineated as I make it seem in this episode. But stick with me, and hopefully you'll get a pretty good idea of the many factors that would lead to an increasingly modern film industry. We'll start with the changing systems on how movies were actually watched. Beginning around the time of Edwin S. Porter's most important films, the movie theater was being born. Of course, it was better known then as the Nickelodeon. The factors that led to the creation of the Nickelodeons take a little bit to explain, so let's start out how movies were originally distributed in the United States and go from there. At the very first, when motion pictures were introduced, they often served as an act in a show. After all, while The Avengers 4 can hold an audience's attention for three and a half hours, watching a 30-second clip of a dance or an actualité usually couldn't, even taking into account the incredible novelty of a moving picture. If you were a theater owner, you could bill whatever traveling performers, singers, dancers, magicians, etc. you booked for the night, and a little more or less than 10 minutes of short films that came least with a film projector. All this is according to David A. Cook's book, A History of Narrative Film, which continues to be one of the most helpful resources in clearly describing this period in film history. The film itself was thought of as a performance in the theater, a part of a whole evening's entertainment. This model was enjoyed by permanent theater owners, but fell out of favor when production companies moved to a model of selling motion pictures and projectors outright. You can imagine the problems that actually buying films presented to exhibitioners who were owners of permanent theaters. If they had to buy the movies they were showing, they would be stuck with them forever. In order to recoup the cost of buying expensive films from production companies, they would have to show them repeatedly. The issue was that repeat customers, who these theaters relied on, would not come back to see the same movies over and over again. Imagine the plight of a modern movie theater who was only ever able to show the movies they bought in the summer of 2016. It'd be fun for a while, sure, but how many people are actually going to want to see Independence Day Resurgence every weekend for the rest of their lives? Or even for a few years? It's a comical idea, but it demonstrates the plight that permanent exhibitors had at the time. The new system did them no favors, but it did benefit traveling exhibitors, who became the next important way movies were distributed. We've seen some of that already. Remember Charles Pathé encountered movies for the first time at a fairgrounds in episode 9. 
Entertainment groups who had set up shop at temporary fairgrounds or festivals avoided the problem of needing new entertainment for repeat customers by simply seeking new customers every stop. For these exhibitors, buying movies wasn't a problem. After all, the folks in Chicago or Denver hadn't seen Life of an American Fireman yet, so they would just go there and show it to them before moving on. Novelty and content for motion picture audiences was provided largely by different exhibitioners who purchased different movies at different times coming to town. This did incredibly well when movies were just part of a show or just a curious attraction, but it began to change when movies began to be the show. The history of film so far has largely been a story of cinema increasing in complexity. To an extent, that increasing complexity is linked to increasing quality of entertainment derived from viewing motion pictures. Now, experts disagree on this here and there. Robert Sklar, in particular, spends a lot of time in his work describing the importance and beauty of early film. But I would say it's pretty much true. Movies increased in entertainment value as they became more sophisticated in their own unique narrative techniques and means of entertaining audiences. Just like you hear weirdly all the time that video games have come a long way since Pac-Man, I think it's completely appropriate to say that movies had, even by 1903, come a long way since the train arrives at the station. I would actually go so far as to say that the last movie with a train in it, The Great Train Robbery, was pretty good. And the increasing pretty goodness of movies like The Great Train Robbery helped convince people that cinema was worth investing in. Two such investors were Harry and Herbert Miles. These were, of course, brothers, because sibling creators and businessmen are all over the place in film history. The Miles brothers started a business in 1903, in which they would buy movies from distributors and rent them to exhibitors at 25% of the purchase cost. This let Harry and Herbert make lots of money, renting the same prints of movies to many people, and appealed to potential exhibitors who would only need to buy a projector and pay a comparatively small rental fee for the films. These could, of course, be changed regularly to attract repeat customers. At this time, our old friend in France, Pathé, started doing the same thing, because like all of history, who actually did something first is often pretty hard to pin down. This new economic model created separate film distributors, producers, and exhibitors who would actually project the movie. It's a system that still lives on today. This new system of film distribution, which benefited permanent theater owners, struck at the same time that movies were beginning to gain the rich narratives we were just talking about, showing more complex stories, exciting action, and scintillating romance. As this potent combination made it fully possible for movies not to be part of the show, but to be the show, Storefronts across the United States were converted to makeshift movie houses which would only show movies. The price of admission for these earliest ancestors of modern megaplexes was five cents, or the value of the American coin called the nickel. And so the Nickelodeon was born, taking its generic name from the Nickelodeon Theater in Pittsburgh, which itself was named after the words nickel and odeon, the Greek word meaning theater. By 1908, there were between eight and 10,000 of these Nickelodeons across the United States. Here I wanted to include a bit about what these theaters were actually like to watch movies in, but I think that could get a bit out of hand. So I'll release a supplemental episode about the actual experience of watching movies in a Nickelodeon next week. But today, it is sufficient to know that the explosion of these cheap entertainment houses took America by storm, and with their rise, 
the demand for movies skyrocketed. To meet this demand, film studios rose to the occasion. As you can imagine, 10,000 theaters needed to change movies regularly, sometimes even putting on more than one unique program a day. This created a massive market for new motion pictures. Existing and new studios worked to sate the public thirst for movies, all while humming the mantra, quantity over quality. At first, these films were ramshackle affairs made out of doors, with shoestring budgets of $200 to $500 and no room for mistakes. Retakes, or re-recording a shot because something wasn't quite right, were relatively infrequent. They weren't really needed, because as Lewis Jacobs wrote in his 1939 book, The Rise of the American Film, A Critical History, quote, Nickelodeons swallowed up motion pictures faster than they could be made. Pictures sold at a good output regardless of quality. Speed of output was all that mattered. These quick and cheap films never featured credits. Most people working on them wished to remain anonymous. Movies at this time were not the centers of glory, romance, and prestige they would soon become. In fact, these movies were seen as low-prestige work that many people were embarrassed to be associated with at all. Still, making movies paid the bills, so thousands of films were rushed into production. But alas, these outdoor excursions and cheap filmmaking were not enough to meet ever-increasing demand for movies. Film producers like Thomas Edison knew well the lessons of the Industrial Revolution and chose to make filmmaking more efficient by bringing its various parts closer together. Movie making would soon move indoors, with massive studios built under glass roofs which would allow the copious amounts of sunlight needed to capture moving pictures. This industrializing ambition was aided by the then-recent invention of the mercury arc lamp, which used then-newfangled electronics and chemistry to make light on demand, light much brighter than the incandescent light bulbs of the day. With these innovations, it became possible for massive film studios to sprout around each other, as producers competed with one another for the same resources, human and otherwise. This would lead to the Fortley Studio era I mentioned in earlier episodes. We've actually seen one of these studios, Alice Key's Solak Studio, back in episode 11. Like Alice Key's studio would be, these early centers of film production were behemoths. The studios were able to carry a movie from its earliest pre-production through shooting, film development, and editing. They had many sets working right next to each other, all at once, unhindered by the need for absolute silence that would become necessary just a few decades later. I'll put a picture of this on the website, and when you see it, you'll understand why in the early days, these production centers were not called studios, but factories. The film factories of the northeastern United States began to pump out incredible amounts of cheap movies, usually with little innovation. Remember, the goal was quantity, not quality. This end was aided by that old industrial favorite, the division of labor, and the roles you see now at the end of movies were beginning then to form. To describe this, let me take a step back and talk about the oldest way of making movies and how it actually worked. If you'll remember all the way back to pretty much every episode of the history of film so far, it seems like the individual filmmaker did everything to make a movie all by themselves. While movies are still talked about in this way, like Orson Welles simply descended from heaven and single-handedly breathed Citizen Kane into existence, it has never really been true. That said, it was much more true when movies were smaller affairs. Edwin S. Porter, for example, was director and cinematographer for Life of an American Fireman, and the stories about him either finding stock footage or waiting with firemen to capture documentary footage lead me to believe that he was also what we could call the writer of the film. 
in addition to obviously being the film's editor. For another good example of this, look at Georges Méliès, who was clearly the writer, director, and head editor for all of his movies, though he obviously had lots of people's help to pull off the special effects. It is at this point in our story that all of this begins to change. Movies were transforming from heroic single filmmakers creating cinematic new worlds to a pantheon of talented people making movies together. While not instant, we'll talk about the further division of labor in filmmaking as it happens in episodes to come, the transformation was beginning. We actually have already seen a film that this happened with. Remember last episode we talked about the Edwin S. Porter movie Rescued from an Eagle's Nest? Something I didn't say last week is that, by modern standards, that movie is actually directed by a man named J. Searle Dolly. What I mean by that is that Dolly directed the actors in their work, while Porter was the person running the camera and the editor while also being the studio head. Now, this makes Porter sound like the film's cinematographer and producer, but it appears it may not have been seen that way at the time. Cook does not list Porter as Dolly's cinematographer or producer, but as his co-director, and further states that this kind of collaboration was contemporary practice. So we're left in the situation where Porter was the co-director, who was ultimately in charge of the project and largely created the visual style of the film, but did not actually direct the actors. The idea of directorship was beginning to crystallize into separate jobs. Even though this was clearly happening, people did and do continue to resist the idea of films being collaborative. Porter actually was so determined to make movies with himself at the center of the creative process that he wasn't able to make them fast enough, and so the Edison Company fired him in 1909. It surely was a sad and upsetting day for Porter, but to be fair to the massive, heartless chasm that was Thomas Edison's chest, times were indeed a changin'. In the mammoth film factories, various aspects of filmmaking were separated out in two different departments. Lewis's language is especially helpful here, writing, quote, By 1908, directing, acting, photographing, writing, and laboratory work were separate crafts, all of equal status. Each worker regarded himself as a factory hand, lacking only a time clock ritual for the concrete evidence of this position. No one received any screen credit for the work he did, for public reputation would mean higher wages. At the same time all of this labor was dividing, a new kind of leadership sprung up, a boss of bosses called a producer. According to Robert Sklar, the producer arose to manage the business side of film production, and to a large extent has stayed there till today. The producer was the person the film director answered to, dealing with the actual resources, budgets, and expenses that kept film factories churning out movies profitably. With different people taking on all of these different roles, Porter simply didn't fit Thomas Edison's industrial vision for the future of film. Don't fret for Porter too much, though. He'll work at different film companies till his retirement from movies in 1915. It is also at this time that the standard length of movies began to be established. That length was 1,000 feet, or a little more than 300 meters, and would last between 10 and 16 minutes. These one-reelers, so-called because their length was one entire reel of film, were the primary output of the film factories, and were usually narrative movies containing stories made up of multiple shots. We've seen one of these already, The Great Train Robbery, which, according to some, was so influential that its length became the standard we just talked about. These could be shown in programs at Nickelodeon theaters, in just a few years, film-going audiences would respond well to more complex stories told across several reels of film, creating the feature film that we're familiar with today. 
But for now, the one-reeler reigned supreme as the only kind of movie being mass-produced. So, as we've just seen, the film industry was really becoming just that, an industry. Large factories with efficiently divided labor pumped out huge quantities of movies. Distributors snapped them up and rented them to exhibitors who made lucrative businesses out of the nickels and dimes of American moviegoers. Money was flowing in and through the whole industry, generated by the public's love for the new medium. That made a lot of people very happy, but made one man very upset. That is because, as far as Thomas Edison was concerned, that money should be flowing upwards into his pockets exclusively. Edison made his fortune as an inventor and as a businessman, and a key part of that business was making sure whenever one of his inventions was purchased, he got money from it. To make sure of that, he registered tons and tons of patents in an attempt to force any similar product out of the market. There have actually been movies made about this with mixed results. So, when Edison took stock of the booming film industry, he took a deep breath and then screamed for his lawyers. Edison claimed that he was the great hero inventor of motion pictures. Now, we know the actual inventor of the motion picture is complicated, but we can say for certain that it was not Thomas Edison. Still, remember it was Edison's employee, W.K.L. Dixon, who invented the kinetograph and the kinetoscope peep show devices. And the engineer Thomas Armat sold his patent for the motion picture projection system called the Vitagraph to Edison in 1896. This left Edison in a powerful situation, because even though he for sure did not invent the motion picture, he had the pieces of paper that made it so, for many intents and purposes, he might as well have. At the very least, Edison had legal rights to important facets of motion picture technology in the United States, and so sought to prevent anyone from using that technology except his own company in an attempt to make all of that wonderful money he so constantly craved flow exclusively into his coffers. These rights included extremely basic elements of film exhibition, including using sprocket holes to pull film through cameras. Edison launched a furious slate of lawsuits against all of his competitors. This included W.K.L. Dixon, who began working on his own motion picture company almost as soon as motion pictures existed. Dixon and his partners created a motion picture company called American Mutoscope and Biograph all the way back in 1895. We touched on it briefly in an earlier episode of the show. This company, commonly called Biograph to make it easier, was one of the targets of Edison's ire. But, much to Edison's dismay, Biograph clapped back. Biograph acquired the patent for the all-important Latham loop, which was essential for preventing film from tearing during recording and projection. Essentially, Biograph said to the Edison company, Oh, you own the idea of putting little holes in your film to make it move? Well, we own the idea of having a little slack in the film to make it work, so there. The pettiness of all of this was well described by one industry worker who would recall the experience later in life, and describe it as, quote, Selling an automobile and not letting anybody else drive it because you have a patent on putting your foot on the pedal. These patent wars, as they came to be known, intensified with Edison suing Biograph no less than 20 times within a few years in an attempt to wrestle control of the industry away from any other studios, especially that of his own prodigal son, Dixon. This would lead to real violence, with Edison sending men to intimidate other studios and even trash their equipment. According to the same man who gave the automobile analogy from earlier, 
Edison's goons would wait around for another studio's employee to open their camera to clean it, and then shoot it. With a gun. These were desperate measures, taken largely by a desperate man. Not a poor man by any means, but one desperate for control of a burgeoning new industry. As Edison yearned to make all of that delicious income from every single facet of the film industry, it turned out that suing everyone, but especially Dixon and Biograph, but everyone wasn't going to work to that end. So Edison decided he would settle. Rather than being the absolute monarch of cinema, he would settle for merely being the chief of an all-powerful oligarchy. In 1908, Edison entered a deal with other film production companies that would result in a group called the Motion Picture Patents Company, sometimes called the MPPC, or more ominously, the Trust. Member companies of the Trust agreed amongst themselves that between them they had the rights to virtually every facet of film technology, so by combining their efforts, they could grant each other, and only each other, permission to use their commonly held patents. This freed them from the threat of litigation from partner companies. They would also be able to combine their efforts to sue anyone who illegally used any of the patents held by any of the company members. The studios Edison gathered unto himself in this group included Essany, Callum, Lubin, Vitagraph, Selig, and Biograph. Within a few years, the French companies Pathé, Gaumont, and Melies's company Star Films would be added to the trust. Now dominating film production on both sides of the Atlantic, the trust began to turn the screw. The MPPC began issuing licenses that were designed to control the entire supply chain of the industry. Only licensed manufacturers were legally allowed to use the patents held by the trust giving the MPPC complete control over the mass production of cameras and projectors. Manufacturers were required to sell their projectors for no less than $150 each and paid a $5 royalty for every projector they had the honor, nay, the privilege of making. Edison used his contacts with Eastman Kodak to ensure that raw film stock would only be sold to licensed producers, ideally making it impossible for anyone outside of the sway of the trust to be able to make movies at all. Licensed film producers and importers had the price they were allowed to sell their films at set, and licensed importers had the amount of film they were allowed to bring in from outside of the United States strictly limited. These producers and importers could only sell their movies to distributors who had obtained a license from the trust, and that came with its own special costs. According to Charles Musser in his 1991 book Before the Nickelodeon, Edwin S. Porter and the Edison Manufacturing Company, distributors would no longer be able to buy films outright, instead leasing them from producers for a period of seven months. These distributors were required to lease a minimum of $2,500 of new film every month. The inflation calculator from the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics doesn't go back to 1908, but in 1913, which is pretty close, $2,500 had the equivalent buying power of $67,000 in 2021. That's a bit more than 56,000 euros and just under 49,000 pounds sterling. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was running a small business, paying that much every single month might cause me some financial troubles. This shut down the small exchanges, but benefited the trust by artificially increasing demand for movies produced by the trust's member companies. 
Like every policy the trust instituted, this one was designed to keep the barrels of money flowing upward into the new oligarchs of film's pockets. Exhibitors weren't left out of the shakedown machine either. Sources differ, but people who wanted to show movies had to pay a licensing fee of either $2 or $2.50 per week to the trust just to show films made by them. And remember, the trust was doing their darndest to make sure their movies were the only ones being made. In addition, Nickelodeon owners were required to pay another licensing fee of $0.10 a foot for each film they displayed. Louis Jacobs states that Nickelodeon programs would last between 20 minutes and an hour. If we assume that each of the one-reeler films being shown at the Nickelodeon had exactly a 1,000 feet of film and lasted precisely 10 minutes, just to make the math easy, that meant that each Nickelodeon would have to pay between $200 and $600 per unique show. Assuming I did my math right. That's between $5,000 and $16,000 in buying power today. And remember that Nickelodeons would often change their shows every day, sometimes more than every day. There would be some variation in this, but you get the idea. This is a lot of money. Thomas Edison couldn't be happier. And what kind of movies were the trust producing at this time? Well, unlike Voldemort, they weren't terrible, but they weren't great. Because every filmmaker working with the Trust Film Factory was required to make as many movies as possible, as fast as possible, all the time, experimentation was discouraged. These movies used multiple shots, sure, but were mostly static and used prosemium framing. And, as Cook describes them, were, quote, unimaginative in narrative terms. These movies were so banal that most textbooks don't even mention any of them by name, skipping straight to W.D. Griffith or more interesting films being made across the world. At the time, though, there was a silver lining. With these movies, exhibitors could be reasonably sure of what to expect. The economic factors that honed the production of movies to their new industrial form also ensured that they were made ship-shape and Bristol fashion. Even if they could be a bit boring or predictable, they would not be difficult for audiences to watch on a technical level. In its own way, the Trust's attempt to overtly monopolize and integrate every aspect of the film industry under its own roof provided its structure and helped give stability to a new and booming industry. But that's all the good I have to say about it. In its own day, the trust wasn't exactly loved. Such draconian practices led some in every facet of the film industry to rebel against it. As Princess Leia would say, The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. And that's what we'll be talking about next week, as we're introduced to a rebellion against Edison's film Empire, led by one Carl Lemley. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of Film. There are a couple endnotes I wanted to put here. One is that for the sake of narrative clarity, I simplified the story of the Trust a little bit. In actuality, Edison formed a version of the Trust to fight W.K.L. Dixon before Dixon joined. But I combined it all into one big trust story because I thought that would be easier to understand, and is really the important thing to walk away from this episode knowing. I'm not alone in this decision. There are many sources that don't split hairs about the difference between the 1907 and 1908 trust, because the only difference is that Dixon and Biograph joined in 1908, bringing the trust to its full zenith of power. I also wanted to include my favorite fact that didn't make it into the show, which is about the quality of those early outdoor films we talked about. According to Lewis Jacobs, whose book was probably my most used source for this episode, 
Early filmmakers would go out recording a movie and find that they would be running out of film towards the end, one reel being the maximum amount they would have to film with. So, they would just have the camera operator crank a little slower. This had the effect of making the action appear on screen to move really fast. So you'd be watching a movie, and everything would be perfectly normal, except for the last minute, when everything would happen at extreme speed. And they just left it that way. Because it didn't matter. People would buy the film no matter what. If you would like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. I love receiving your emails. And to view resources that will help you understand the history we talk about in the show, you can visit historyoffilmpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the show and help it grow, the best way you can do that is by leaving a review wherever you listen and telling your friends about it. Thank you once again for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>